This is the Best Friends Podcast, dedicated to sharing the people and programs that are ending the killing of cats and dogs in America's animal shelters. You'll hear from animal welfare leaders from across the movement who will share the innovative and collaborative work that are creating life-saving successes in communities of all sizes. Today is Thursday, July 23rd. My name is John Dunn, and if you've been listening to the Best Friends Podcast, then you know how much I love cats. I'm a very proud cat dad, so turning this podcast into all cats all the time would be perfectly fine with me. But it turns out I'm not allowed to do that. How do I know that? Because I asked, and I was told absolutely not. But that being said, we do have a lot of things to talk about when it comes to cats. They are the number one animal killed in shelters. For every dog that lost its life last year, two cats met the same fate. And part of the mission of this podcast is to share information that can help save more lives to get us to no-kill 2025. And cats need to be saved in a big way. So today we're talking about a million cats. Well, a lot more than that, actually. But before we get into that, we just want to say thank you for subscribing to the Best Friends Podcast. Your ratings, reviews, the sharing you do with your friends and colleagues, it means a lot to us. Now on the podcast website, bestfriends.org slash podcast, you'll see a list of all the previous episodes. On each of those pages, we have all of the information from that show. And new this week, we've added comments. That's right, we've got a comment section to all of the pages for each episode. So if you want to come yell at me because I said something stupid on, say, every episode, you can now do that very easily. It's also a great way for you to share your thoughts, experiences on each of the topics we cover on the podcast. Now on to today's episode. Dr. Kate Hurley is a rock star. She has contributed to our field in so many ways. Her impact on shelter medicine easily puts her into the Animal Welfare Hall of Fame on the first ballot. So this week, I chatted with her about cats, about her partnership with Dr. Julie Levy to create the Million Cat Challenge, a campaign to save one million cats in five years, and what we need to do going forward to end the killing of healthier, treatable cats in America's animal shelters. How's life treating you in this time of COVID? I'm good. I'm good. COVID life, um, you know, I have a lot of anxiety for the world, you know, a lot of sadness for the state of things and anger and worry. But for me personally, I've actually been surprised at how in some ways it's been like I've sort of reverted to my childhood self that I was always kind of a loner as a kid. And I spent a lot of time in my own head and reading and playing and exploring and so I've spent a lot of time like walking and biking and kayaking and picking berries and I haven't minded it as much as I thought I might. And it's been interesting working from home. Like turns out that's working better than we thought it would. And it's been really, really interesting to see how it has impacted animal sheltering in some ways that have been hugely challenging and in some ways that have been hugely positive. Yeah, I've worked from home for 10 years. Yeah. Uh, I think I've made this joke on the podcast before, but I don't really have any friends. So I just call this regular life, <laughs> uh, except now I'm doing a podcast. But, um, you know, COVID has definitely changed our world, animal welfare, animal services. Yeah. From your perspective, shelter medicine, feral cat, community cat, uh, things have changed a lot. Yeah. A lot. And in a really, as I said, I think in a really good way, I saw something about the transformation that COVID has wrought or necessitated in the healthcare sector. And it was talking about crisis response as the changes in practices that you need to implement when capacity of a system is exceeded by an outbreak of disease. 
And I think we could take out that part about by an outbreak of disease and just say that shelter capacity has been exceeded for the last hundred years by trying to manage community cats through a confinement based like catch and confine system. It just wasn't suited really as a solution to the problem of the tens of millions of free roaming community cats that there are in our world. We never would have thought that we could manage jackrabbits or coyotes by rounding them all up and bringing them into animal shelters. Whether we euthanized them or we tamed them, we adopted out the coyote pups. <laughs> we just never would have thought that that was the right tool. But because community cats look just like domestic cats, we were inclined to apply the same tool that has worked pretty well for dogs to that population. And then COVID came along and just said, we cannot spend our resources. We cannot crowd our shelters. We cannot have people coming to this risky place to bring in community cats. We must find a way to manage them where they are. And it turns out that's what's right for cats. And that's how we better serve community members. It's how we better actually serve the nuisance situations that were uh, giving rise to the desire to bring a cat into the shelter in the first place. Well, since you mentioned all of those wild animals, I might as well ask if we're not controlling the population of those animals by taking them to shelter or, right. you know, like we're not doing TNR on coyotes, then why cats? Why cats? I mean, honestly, if we could TNR coyotes, I think it would be terrific. There's reasons why. I just want to point out that you said this. Okay. You took me in this direction, Kate. I just followed. <laughs> If we had um, an easy way to deliver birth control to coyotes so that we had non-breeding coyote populations occupying a niche in an ecosystem without reproducing, it actually might be a better coyote management tool than the other, the other management tools that we have. But basically, like coyotes and any litter-bearing mammal, like rabbits also, cats are a litter-bearing mammal and they breed to the carrying capacity of the environment. That's honestly what puts the ceiling on any of those populations, right? TNR or not, coyotes eventually breed to the carrying capacity of the environment, then there's no more food. And we know that when you, when you kill the coyotes or you remove the coyotes, they'll just rebreed to the carrying capacity of the environment, right? Unless you reduce the amount of food. What makes cats a little bit different, and especially community cats, so sort of urban and suburban cats, is that we as humans have artificially increased the carrying capacity of the environment by offering supplemental food to cats. It's just something that we do as humans. It's a very common activity, and you can approve of it or disapprove of it. And maybe the former animal control officer in me is like, just people just don't do that. But it is just an expression of caring that people have for these little furry beings that they see that look just like our pet cats. And people feel compassionate towards cats that are free roaming and they offer food. But what the cats do is they take that food that we offer and turn it into yet more cats, as well as, you know, create some nuisance issues for, for wildlife and other critters. And so we need to balance the extra food that we're offering cats with reproductive control so that we don't increase the burden of cats in our communities. Does that make sense? It does make sense. So if we were going to offer coyote feeding stations, for sure, for sure, we need to also make a way to um, control their reproduction. I will say that my wife is working from home full time because of COVID for the first time. And our backyard has become like a wildlife feeding station. She's got all the squirrels and chipmunks. She's got them named. We've got chipmunk Gary. Because Gary lives in the gutter, gutter Gary. Uh, she bought one of the, those picnic tables for the squirrels. Uh, I wish I could move the camera on the on the computer so you could see it. But uh, we've definitely become the place to be 
for rodents in this neighborhood. We've been doing TNR for a long time now. Yeah. You know, Louis, Louise Holton, Becky Robinson, Alley Cat Allies. I think that's like late 80s. Yeah, yeah. Uh, TNR and I started in animal control at about the same time. Like I was starting as an animal control officer in Santa Cruz when Becky, when I heard about this crazy program in San Francisco to trap and just sterilize the cats and put them back. And what did you think then? I thought it was madness. <laughs> and look how far uh, we've come. Yep. I, you know, because I was an animal control officer, I had that perspective of like, I was the one that picked cats up when they'd been hit by cars. It was Santa Cruz, which is, uh, got a lot of rural areas, Santa Cruz, California. And so there's coyotes. And so I saw the cats killed by coyotes. We also did wildlife rehab at my shelter. And so I saw the animals that had been injured or killed by cats. And so I saw a lot of the negative associated with free roaming cats. And like a lot of people, I fell into the trap of thinking that removing cats would make there be less cats. I fell into the trap. The trap? Very good pun. That was pretty clever, huh? <laughs> but it really is a trap, right? It seems so logical. There's 10 coyotes in a field and you take two away. Now there's only eight, right? Less risk from the coyotes, less impact from the coyotes. Unless those any of those eight coyotes have another litter of coyotes, right? And then you have 12 instead because it can support four younger ones instead of the two adult ones that you removed. And so I think that's the trap that I fell into as an animal control officer was thinking, remove some of the cats, then there will be less. There will be less of them to prey on wildlife. There will be less of them roaming around, getting hit by cars. There will be less of them getting eaten by coyotes. But in fact, what I was doing by removing some cats and not at the same time going and finding what the food source was and wiping that out. So I didn't change the carrying capacity of the environment. And I didn't remove all the cats because I couldn't. You know, there's tens of thousands of cats in Santa Cruz County. I could only catch so many every day. All I was doing was destabilizing the age structure and making it so the remaining cats would have larger litters and there would be a greater number of juvenile animals. Guess who's more of a risk to wildlife? Juvenile animals. They shed toxoplasmosis and other pathogens at a higher rate, and that's a risk to the sea otters in the Monterey Bay. Guess who's more of a risk to getting eaten by a coyote or hit by a car? Juvenile animals that are dispersing, going to find new territory, going to find new food sources. So Becky had it right, honestly. The best way I could have met my own goals was to sterilize and keep the cats where they were. In the absence of being able to eliminate the food source, which often is simply impractical. So you said you started as an animal control officer. Where does your career go from there? Um, so I was an animal control officer for six years and I actually loved it. I loved being an animal control officer. And, you know, I said to people at the time, like I would, every day there's something I get to do as an ACO. I mean, now we, we try and call them field officers or community service officers or something, but it was an ACO in my day. Um, every day there's something I do that has an impact that I would get up in the morning and do, even if this wasn't my paid job. You know, I'm going to rescue an animal off the freeway, or I'm going to get a possum that's stuck in somebody's washing machine, or I'm going to talk to somebody about how to keep their dog from barking, which might mean house training it so they could bring it inside that they didn't know how to do. And so to be honest, it wasn't that I... I really disliked being an animal control officer, but you know, like at a point I was just like, you know, I'm going to get too 
too old and decrepit to outrun these Rottweilers. Even like it was so long ago, it was even before Pitbull. Like we talked about Pitbulls as the problem dog, it was Rottweilers that we were scared of. And I was like, I gotta do something, you know, like I gotta sort of figure out a career path from here. Um, and I realized I didn't wanna go into management, ironically. And I thought that the, the way I could still have that same kind of like hands-on, I would end every day knowing I did something that I would have wanted to do, even if it wasn't my paid job, was through veterinary medicine. Um, and so that's why I went that route. All right. So you become a vet and you're looking to get into shelter medicine. Were you, did you want to be a private veterinarian? Um, actually, so when I became, when I went to vet school, there, there was two veterinarians that I knew of in California working with animal shelters. Like it just wasn't much of a thing, but like I was rare, you know, coming into veterinary medicine then, um, with an animal control background, I was the only person in my class that had even worked in a shelter. Like maybe people had volunteered as dog walkers, but it was an, it was an unusual trajectory. And when I was in vet school, I learned a lot of stuff that I was like, oh my God, why didn't I know this as an animal control officer? Like, why was I cleaning my truck out every day with a disinfectant to prevent parvo spread from my vehicle? that veterinarians had known for 20 years didn't reliably inactivate parvo. I was so upset when I learned that. And I was like, why, you know, why aren't we learning this? I, I had this idea that there could be a thing called shelter medicine. And I hadn't heard those words spoken together, like shelter and medicine. Um, and I talked to my professors about it and they said, sorry, you know, there just isn't anything like that. There is no such thing. So if you want to do that, just go get a job in a shelter. And so that's what I did. And it was not for the faint of heart in those days because there wasn't an association of shelter veterinarians to join. You know, there was not a big peer network to find supporter information. But it so happened there was one veterinarian who was volunteering at the shelter where I worked, where I first worked as a shelter vet in Madison, Wisconsin. And that was Dr. Lori Peak, who is with Maddie's Fund. And so I, was, I became aware of the opportunity to do the residency in shelter medicine at UC Davis that was funded by Maddie's Fund. And so that's... That's how I ended up coming back and I never left. All right. So, okay. So cats, million cat challenge. How do you get where you are today? Maybe that's just jumped ahead quite a ways. No, it's actually a natural segue. So, you know, I think one of the huge frustrations for me as a shelter veterinarian was feline upper respiratory infection, which was the most common medical reason why cats were euthanized and probably the second most common reason why cats were euthanized at all at that shelter, even way back then. And across the United States, it was the most common medical reason why, why cats were euthanized. And there was, I remember a time when I was standing in the hallway outside of my isolation ward and at the Humane Society in Madison, and the ward was full of cats with upper respiratory infection. And there was all these crates stacked in the hallway with towels over them that had just started sneezing and stray was full and adoption was full and ISO was full and the hallway was full. And the only option I had as a veterinarian was to decide which cats to euthanize. And that was not why I went to vet school. Um, and like in that moment, I just thought like, there's, there has got to be a better way. It's upper respiratory infection. I mean, now in the time of COVID, you're like, oh man, respiratory infection can be pretty bad. But I was like, it's a common kitty cold, you know, like we should be able to solve this. And I really went to the residency with hopes that we could crack the code on it. And we did. Um, we got a grant from the Morris Animal Foundation and we looked at upper respiratory infection in nine North American animal shelters for an entire year. We got data on over 25,000 cases of upper respiratory infection, and we looked at what the risk factors for were for it. 
And, you know, some of you have heard the punchline of this, but the risk factor that made a 50-fold difference in risk for upper respiratory infection on a per cap per day basis was just eight square feet of floor space in their initial housing when they came in the shelter and a double compartment housing unit so that their litter box could be separate from their food, water, and sleeping space so that their food and water stayed clean and didn't have feces in it or kitty litter. And so they could eat and drink and sleep. And that was it. You know, it's a stress-based disease and they just needed four more square feet than what they usually got in shelters to stay healthy. And it reduced it by like 90% or more. But when shelters were still taking in more cats than they were able to release alive, the idea of giving each cat twice as much space when you're euthanizing as it seems for space, that's a hard thing to do. And so ultimately, in order to be a veterinarian and solve this problem, which is basically a disease problem, right? It's a virus but it's a stress-based virus. And to be able to provide cats with the conditions in shelters to not be so stressed that they get sick, I had to figure out, along with all my colleagues, how do we correct the imbalance between more cats coming into shelters than leaving alive? Because if you're not euthanizing for space, then it's not a problem to give each cat the space that she needs. And amazingly, if you give each cat the space that she needs, they move more than twice as fast. So you actually still end up being able to give care for just as many cats over time. And so it was really, that was where I started studying on like, we got to crack the code on like, we just got to figure out a way. So we're not bringing in more cats than are released alive. And we got to solve the mismatch between the types of cats that are coming in and the types of live release options that we have. And we're bringing in cats that aren't social and aren't suited to be in a home. We just don't have the adopters for those. And so that was where I started to look at, well, you know, what else can you do? And I actually went back. This is why I mentioned coyotes. I went back to coyote research and I saw an article in the paper about how in a community near me, lethal control of coyotes had been outlawed. And as a result of it being, and it was outlawed partly as a result of studies that showed that lethal control was ineffective because of what I just said, you know, if you take two coyotes away, but you don't change the food source, the remaining coyotes just breed back to the carrying capacity environment. So not only is it maybe a humane issue, but, you know, even for someone who's not a coyote advocate, it's just ineffective. It's a waste of money and time. And so in this community where it had stopped, Instead, producers were motivated to do some other things to protect their livestock. They were motivated to put in electric fencing, for instance, and their livestock losses decreased by about half. Now, they could have put that electric fencing in any time during the previous decades when lethal control was in place, but they didn't. But when the false solution that wasn't even reducing the number of coyotes present, when that false solution was removed, they put in a real solution. It was better for their sheep because they reduced the death from coyote predation by half or more. And it actually more effectively controlled the coyotes because those sheep were a food source. So by fencing in their sheep, they reduced the carrying capacity of the environment. So they were able to drop the litter size and drop the number of coyotes present. And so I think you can see the amazing parallel with community cats. If instead of removing them to a shelter, we instead sterilize them and put them back, that reduces the carrying capacity of the environment because those cats still go and eat the food, but they can't turn it into kittens anymore, but they don't leave it there for any other cats to use to turn into larger litters. So we have reduced the number of cats present, which is a win for wildlife and people who don't like cats. But also we then incentivize community members to solve the inciting problem instead of just bringing a cat 
to the shelter every three or four months, year after year after year, now community members are more motivated to say, well, why are cats hanging around here? And have a conversation with us about like, oh, you know, maybe you need to cover your trash cans or put that bowl of dog food you have on your back porch inside at night or talk to your neighbor who is feeding cats and have her get in touch with us so we can help her TNR the rest of the cats that she's feeding. But it actually solves problems more effectively than having one person in the community remove a cat, but never have a conversation with the other person in the community who is attracting the cat or feeding the cat. Right. So ultimately it was my involvement with cats and the birth of the million cat challenge for me personally was really, my goal was to solve upper respiratory infection. The birth. I love that. You're really on point with the puns today. Yeah. So, uh, how do we get to how, what is the birth of the million cat challenge? I think it was in 2009 when a whole team of a bunch of shelter medicine programs teamed up to do a consultation together. We called it consultation camp and we were going to sort of exchange information about how we all approached consulting with shelters. And we went to Jacksonville, Florida, and they had just started feral freedom a few months earlier, maybe just a couple of months earlier. And so when we were looking at the data, their euthanasia rate some months in the year prior had exceeded a hundred percent for cats as they caught up her from the month previously. So as we walked into what we expected to see as a, a pretty desperate situation from a cat perspective. But then we saw, you know, inside the shelter, there was still a lot of crowding, a lot of struggles that that, that shelter along with many shelters at that time were having. But in the loading bay, there was these metal shelving units and there was all these traps on the metal shelving units. And twice a day, trucks would come and pick them up and take them over to get spayed and neutered and vaccinated and ear tipped and put back where they came from. And we were like, wait, you're doing what? And they explained the program to us. And we were like, but, you know, even if the people don't want that, like, that's not why they brought the cat to you. And they were like, yeah, no. And we were like, well, aren't people freaking out? And they were like, no, surprisingly not. We thought they would, but they're not. It turns out like we're just doing this. And in the same way that people weren't freaking out about the fact that some months we had to euthanize more than 100% of the cats that came in because we were catching up from last month, like, that's not awesome either, but it turns out people just like, whatever we do, we help people solve the problems that they have if they have them. But surprisingly, people just aren't complaining like we thought they would. And I was like, but are you, are they all getting hit by cars? And they were like, no, they're not. And I was like, well, then can you do it with all the friendly cats too? They're in the cages in here. And they were like, yeah, as long as they're healthy and it's not an ecologically sensitive area and there's like no major hazard, hazard at the location of origin, let's just put them all back. And it worked and it was transformative, not just for the cats that got put back, but for the cats that did need the shelter's care. Like all of a sudden they did have the space, they had the time, they had the live outcomes. Um, and that had been one of the shelters that participated in the pilot of our upper respiratory infection study. And so we just saw the impact on disease, on cat well-being, on staff well-being, on volunteer engagement, and that cascade of effects. From then, like I spent the next couple of years really reading the research and the literature very closely to figure out like, why did that work so well? That seems way too good to be true. That like this whole time, as long as they were healthy and it's not an ecologically sensitive area, we can just put them back? Like, you're kidding me. 
But then I read the literature and I was like, no, this really works. This reduces the number of free roaming cats in communities. This improves the health of free roaming cats. This decreases public health risk. It decreases nuisances and decreases feeling overpopulation. And so I put that into a little talk that I gave at the Chico City Library in Northern California um, in December of 2012. And there was about 25 people there representing about 10 shelters and sharing mostly about this idea of you like you could sterilize the cats and put them back and a little bit about managed admission some of the other things that became the five key initiatives the million cat challenge but it was really focused on this idea of sterilization and return and the night before that meeting at the chico city library i had read the first chapter or so of this book called switch how to change when change is hard and early on in that book i think it's like page 37 tells the story of the 100,000 Lives Campaign, which was a campaign in human healthcare to reduce hospital-associated deaths due to mistakes or errors in healthcare delivery by 100,000. And that was striking to me because it takes some courage to admit that you're in a hospital where the mistakes that you're making are costing patient lives. And it takes courage as a profession to admit that the mistakes, the, the quality issues with healthcare delivery in hospitals are costing 100,000 human lives. You know, that there's that much room for improvement. But by coming together as a profession and taking the lead on that, taking ownership of it, there was a way to do that in a way that was really taking a leadership role instead of trying to like sort of push that under the rug of like, we're not doing a good job. Like, no, let's own it and let's fix it. And the challenge that had been issued for the 100,000 Lives campaign was some is not a number, soon is not a time. So let's pick a number, 100,000. And let's pick a time 18 months from now when we will come together and we will say that because of these six quality initiatives that we implemented, we collectively reduced healthcare-associated deaths, iatrogenic deaths, by 100,000 against our own baseline. So I just read that, and I was there that, in that little conference room in the Chico City Library, and I was like looking at people's faces and seeing the connections, and like one person was like, well, we could do it, but we don't have a TNR arm, and someone else was like, I could start a volunteer group to do that. And like, well, we could really look at this piece of providing people with a safety net so they don't have to bring the cats in and all. And I was like, you guys, some is not a number, soon is not a time. And I passed around a yellow legal pad and I asked everybody to put on that legal pad, like their name, their shelter, and how many fewer cats would be euthanized because of what they learned and the programs they would be implement because of that little gathering in the Chico City Library that day. And I called it, the, it was the thousand cat challenge. <laughs> And the folks there, just the, the 10 or so shelters that were represented, committed to euthanizing over 1,300 fewer cats. And I said, let's, let's, let's do it in six months. Let's revisit it in six months. And sure enough, six months later, they had beat their goal by several hundred cats. So just one, one of the shelters dropped euthanasia by over 900 cats in the first year. Okay, so those shelters, they had implemented, I guess, what today we'd call a return to field program? They were implementing some version of return to field, alternatives to intake, sort of cat safety net, managed admission. Yeah. 
So it was sort of a precursor. We hadn't really thought about the five key initiatives, the mailing catch and challenge and balancing it from the outcome end and the intake end. So it was mostly around this idea that there's more than just like the pathway of taking in more cats than you can find adoptive homes for and euthanizing the difference. Either you could have returned to field for ones that are either aren't suited to be adoptive in adoptive homes or there's not enough adoptive homes for them or you could divert them to TNR or you could defer intake until you have room in the shelter system. So some combination of of sort of adapting that model. But return to field was the center of it. We were talking about the million cat challenge. Those results are great, but how are how did you start adding zeros? So we go to the thousand cat challenge too. Then at, at Expo in Nashville the following year, so 2013, that was when Julie Levy, who's the director of the University of Florida Shelter Medicine Program, and John Cicerelli, who was the director of San Jose City Animal Care Services at that time, and he was one of the maybe the second shelter to the first in California to implement what was then called Feral Freedom. And so Julie and John and I had been doing this sort of three-part talk where um, Julie would talk about TNR and John would talk about his practical experience. And then I would talk about some of the research and the theoretical framework that I've been wrapping my mind around for the last couple of years. And we had an audience of almost 2,000 people. We were the plenary session at HSUS Expo that year. And we'd put all these cards, we'd printed out cards with a cat on them, business cards, and it was blank on the flip side. And we weren't sure what we were going to do, but we knew we were going to put those on the seats of everybody in the audience. And then we we're going to ask them to do something with it. But then Dan Heath, who is the one of the authors of Switch, was the keynote speaker at Expo that year. And so he was talking about change and Switch. So I was like, oh my God, we have a hundred times as many people as we're in that Chico City Library. And the Chico City Library, we've got the thousand cat challenge. We have a hundred times as many people. Let's do the hundred thousand cat challenge. Let's do it right here, right now. Let's like, let's issue the hundred thousand cat challenge. And so on those business cards, we had people write how many fewer cats would be euthanized because of what they learned at the plenary session and at the conference that week. And when we tallied it up, it came to 126,126 fewer cats euthanized. It's a striking number. Amazing. Yeah. So now just to get to a million, just got to go to 10 more big conferences, I guess. <laughs> right? <laughs> how do you get to a million? So how we got to a million from there was that uh, when we got back, um, Julie and I were kind of lamenting, like that was so exciting. There was so much energy, like it just felt like a moment. And I will say for listeners, it felt like a moment then, like COVID feels like right now in terms of just the, the possibility to do things differently, to do things radically differently in a way that's better and more humane and more effective. And it really felt like things were coalescing around cats right right at that time. It was like, it was the moment for our profession to shift. And yet, neither of us really had time or a method to work on it. So we came, each came home to like 300 emails about like, I'm so fired up. I want to do this. We want to do this. How can we do this? Will you talk to our city council? Will you talk to our board of supervisors? Will you talk to our staff? Will you talk to our volunteers? And we're like, yes, we want to. But we both have full-time jobs. <laughs> we need to keep our programs funded. And so it started as an idea of like, well, let's just do a Kickstarter campaign and we'll try and get a million people to each donate $1 to save a million cats. But instead we wrote it up as a grant proposal and Maddie Swan said, yeah, we're in. And that is how the Million Cat Challenge was born. There are five key initiatives 
that are part of the challenge. Could you talk about them? So then we wanted to make it about more than just return to field, you know, recognizing that was one important tool, but it wasn't going to be an appropriate tool for every shelter. So in some communities, it's not even legal or like they just don't have the veterinarian on staff or for whatever reason, that's not something that they're going to choose. We also wanted to make it really balanced so that there was, you know, sort of two things on the intake side and then two things on the outtake side and then capacity for care sitting in the middle. So it was really holistic. Um, You know, I think one of the things that is important is that we don't start thinking about saving lives after animals have already come in the shelter, right? That's not the time to start thinking about saving lives. The time to start thinking about saving lives is before the animal ever comes in the door. When you're first on the phone or you have a first contact with somebody who's experiencing a concern or a problem with an animal. But at the same time, you don't want it to be like they get in the door and then it's too late. If return to field is not an option, then there's nothing else that you can do. You don't want people to be limited in how many levers they can pull. And so we recognize that on the outcome end, also for those cats that weren't appropriate candidates for return to field, we needed to really open up the other sort of outflow method through removing barriers to adoption. And so that makes up, so the five key initiatives of the Million Cat Challenge are on the front end, alternatives to intake. So really asking the question, is this cat best served by coming into a shelter? And we're seeing that with COVID now, not only a lot of healthy free-roaming community cats are not best served by coming into a shelter, they're best served, if they need to be sterilized, they're best served by just going, getting sterilized and going back. But also people's pet cats, if they can't keep them, now we're seeing the rise of really like home to home services where they never have to experience one day of fear, one day in a cage because they just go straight from their original home to their next home. So that's alternatives to intake. Or maybe if you can help solve that problem for that person, get them through a rough spot, help them solve their litter box problem, give them some food, whatever it is, maybe that cat just gets to stay home. So that was alternatives to intake. And then managed admission is like, well, if the cat should come in, does it need to come in today when it's Thursday and we're chock full? And if we bring one more cat in, we're going to have to close that portal door and each cat is going to only have four feet of space. And then they're both going to start sneezing and they're both going to be sick for two weeks and they're both going to cost us a bunch more money. Or we have an adoption event planned or a big transfer planned for this weekend. So could the cat come in next Thursday? When we're caught up on surgery and we got a space for her and like we can find her a home. So it's just this idea of, you know, when I was working in a shelter, like it was a big badge of honor that we were an open admission shelter. And open admission remains a great concept, but you don't want that to be, uh, you know, sort of like free for all admission. It's like hospitals take all comers. It's not like you can't go to the hospital, but you don't want to go to the hospital if you don't need to. And you don't want to just go sit there when it's going to be, you know, 14 hours of sitting in the ER before you can get seen, right? So this concept of just scheduling admission that's compatible with when the shelter is able to offer services for that cat in an efficient way. And what we found is that oftentimes that reduces the length of stay for cats again, so that they stay less time so that shelters can take in at least as many, if not more cats or other animals in need of services. And then capacity for care is really about the care that the cats receive in the shelter. And all of this really applies perfectly well to dogs and rabbits and chinchillas and everything else. It's just making sure that, that the cat's welfare needs and health needs are attended to in the shelter. And part of that is making sure that if they're in single cat house, not in a room, that they've got that eight square feet of floor space.
from the time that they enter the shelter to the time that they leave, except for maybe a few hours while they're recovering from spay neuter surgery. And then on the outcome end, we have return to field that I've kind of come to think of as also, you can think about it as alternatives to adoption. You know, sort of on the dog side, it's like recognizing that adoption is not the only outcome and that for the from the dog side of things, return to owner is something that I think we haven't we haven't worked hard enough to do to get dogs back with their families of origin. But just recognizing sort of adoption is not the only thing. And sometimes it's not the best thing that can happen to an animal. The very best thing is that that animal goes back where it was already loved and valued. And then removing barriers to adoption. I think for some shelters, the idea of open adoptions was was old hat. But for some shelters still, that was really a new thing. And again, when you look at it from a population perspective, I think we sometimes think of it as like open adoptions will mean that bad people who shouldn't have pets will get them and we're sacrificing the quality of adopter for the quantity of adoptions. But when we think of it from a population perspective, just like any animal will breed to the caring capacity of the environment, any person in America who wants a cat is going to get a cat. Guaranteed. There are plenty of cats for them to choose from, even still. And so when we have barriers to adoption, when we charge $200 for an adoption, or we have an eight page application you have to fill out and you have to sign off your firstborn, which was totally the model that I embraced when I was first in animal sheltering. All we're doing is driving adopters to sources where they will get cats that aren't sterilized and aren't vaccinated and aren't identified. And there's no opportunity to have a conversation with somebody about how to take good care of that cat. So we're driving away the most fragile adopters, potentially the people most in need of support to have a successful relationship. And so sort of like return to fields, like in the big picture, our barriers to adoption, we're undermining the very causes we're trying to support. I just looked it up to make sure I had the very latest. Your goal was to get to 1 million cats saved in five years. You started in 2014. And as of me looking right now, it is 2,517,772. Against each shelter's own baseline before joining the Million Cat Challenge. Congratulations. Um, I mean, uh, thank you. Um, the congratulations on my part is just like for having a great idea with Julie Levy of like bringing together all of these shelters, but really like congratulations to the Million Cat Challengers, because that is just over 1500 shelters that have accomplished really an extraordinary shift in life-saving success. And I think it's such a story for our time of, you know, in many cases, you know, sometimes, you know, it does take a grant. You need, you need some resources to get the spay-neuter facility to get the program up off the ground. But it didn't take an infusion of billions more dollars into animal welfare. The biggest thing it took was just a shift in approach from something that was fundamentally mismatched to the problem it was trying to solve to something that was just a better match. And it's like this huge shift was... It's like it was just on the other side of a curtain. And it took one innovative group to see it and pilot it. And then it took a lot of courage on the part of the animal sheltering profession to embrace it really in a remarkably short amount of time. And I think about the other things that we struggle with in society, and it gives me hope to think like there might be just something, some little shift right on the other side of a curtain that doesn't require billions of dollars or us to evolve into a higher species <laughs> that could fix things, fix some of the really stubborn problems that we face. It's so very true, Kate. And I, uh, you know what, best friends, we're 
working to end the killing of cats and dogs in America's animal shelters. And we're doing it. Yeah. You know, Julie Castle, our CEO, uh, she said this, that we are lucky in the sense that we've devoted ourselves to this cause, you, me, everyone listening to this. And we're in a position, we're going to solve our cause in our lifetime. Like this thing that we wanted to end, we're going to end it. Right. And that's just not the case for others uh, in causes and nonprofits doing incredibly worthy, noble things, environmental issues, uh, you know, bringing water to the developing world. They're making progress, but they're, they don't have a, like an end to what, in a way that we do, if that makes sense. And by the time you and I kick the bucket, uh, hopefully this is done. This is our lifetime, right? Yeah. So you see the impact of programs and organizations like the Million Cat Challenge and the acceleration. Yeah. And you mentioned that meeting in Chico in 2012. That's eight years ago. Yeah. Just eight yeah. years ago. So the progress really has been, it's just astounding. Yeah. I will tell you, I, I would not have said with the same confidence that I think like we can win this. <laughs> that we can live in a world where there every animal that comes to a shelter gets the right outcome, whether that's return to field or adoption or getting back with its owner or not coming into the shelter at all. I absolutely believe that now. I believe it's possible. But let's be real. We are still a ways off. We've got cats dying in shelters at a two to one rate, two cats for every dog killed in a shelter last year. So we have a lot of progress but we are still just not good, good enough at saving cats on the whole. Again, I think because we are mismatching the solution to the problem, we are trying to save cats that didn't need to be saved. We are creating situations where cats need to be saved when that didn't need to be the case at all. And we are taking a dog paradigm and applying it as if cats are just furry little dogs with sharp claws and pointy ears and bad attitudes. And they are not. They are not. And I think we have an uh, opportunity now to weave in the social justice aspect of community cat management or cat man. I shouldn't even say community cat management, cat management and animal sheltering for cats and recognize that some of the cultural values that are part of animal sheltering are not universal and that there are people in our communities who have beloved cats that are allowed outside. And there are people in our communities who love their community cats, that their community cat might be their very most important social contact that they have, you know, for, for a lot of people. Though that cat that they feed on their back porch, that is one of the high points of their day and one of the most important mammals that they interact with, right? And too often we have made a judgment that those cats that come into the shelter shouldn't go back. And now we've started to wrap our mind around the idea if they're not socialized, if they're feral, then they could go back. But we still are working on wrapping our mind around the fact that if they're friendly, we should try to find them a different home. But if they're in good body condition and they're friendly, that means good body condition means someone was taking care of them. And friendly means somebody loves them. Somebody's petting that cat. That cat has a name. That cat might have five names because five people might love it. <laughs> but that cat is loved. That cat is valued. That cat's in good body condition and it's social. Now, I don't know if you see the same where you live, uh, but, but on the next door app here in my neighborhood, we basically have the same few types of posts like over and over. One is, I saw someone on my outdoor camera walking past my house in the middle of the night. Do you know who it was? Yeah. And another, it, it's cats, cat related. Is this your cat? I lost a cat. Uh, and I do my darndest to communicate that very point, right? Which is, you found a friendly cat. 
Yeah. That doesn't mean that that cat needs to come into your house. And that's a very hard thing for the average, you know, cat loving yeah. member of the public to grasp. I think, you know, there was a post the other day, this lady said, I've been able to save three similar cats just like this, a friendly cat that showed up on her doorstep. Um, perfectly healthy looking cat, but I can't take another right now. And I don't think I'll be able to get him adopted out. Yeah. So for her, it was like, you know, she was looking to save that cat. And the alternative to save is not save. Do you know what I mean? Right. Like, and I can tell her, hey, that's totally, that cat's totally fine. But for so many people, it's like unfathomable for them to see it that way. Right. And probably maybe what she was doing is she saved a cat and then the person whose cat she saved got another cat. And then she saved that one. And that person got another cat because they like cats. And so they kept getting cats. And on a grand scale, that's something that may happen with animal shelters, right? People save cats. For those of you who are listening, I'm making air quotes. They save cats that are in good body condition and friendly. Those cats didn't need to be saved. They needed to be sterilized. They needed to be vaccinated. They need to be, and they need to get some identification on them. And maybe the person who loved that cat need a little help to get some cat food or something. But if we can stop saving cats that don't need to be saved and instead provide resources to communities so those cats can get spayed and neutered instead, we can focus our efforts on those cats that do need to be saved, that aren't doing well. They're not in good body condition. They're known to have been abandoned because the people moved out and now like the cat is left behind. And we know that this cat is in need of a new living situation or this cat has been the victim of neglect or cruelty. Or this is one of 25 cats that's in someone's yard and like this, this situation has to change. Those are the cats that need to be saved and we could do an amazing job of saving those if we weren't also trying to save all the other ones. Hey, before I forget, I was going to ask you about my cat, Bob. Um, Bob has a foot fetish. I don't know, uh, since, since I had a professional here, I thought I would ask if there's any literature on that, uh, hoping maybe a professional could help me better understand him. Uh, no, but like, uh, so this woman I was saying, you know, I was messaging with her on Nextdoor, there is this educational opportunity, but at the end of the day, I'm just a dude. I'm just some guy on Nextdoor saying that this is better than that and you shouldn't be doing this. Yeah. And that the feelings you're doing, you think you're saving a life. I'm a saying essentially that you're not. Yeah. And I mean, I don't mean to say it like that, but you get my point. Yeah. We have to have a broader approach to that education than just like loud mouths like John Dunn. I think it has to be from the authority and the community. And that's the shelter. I think one of the things that we have learned that's been interesting is how much power shelters have to sort of shape community perception. That was one of the things that I've that has surprised me and that has been one of the most consistent pieces of feedback that Julie and I have gotten and the rest of the Million Cat team on how communities have responded when shelters have implemented community cat programs where there's anticipation of resistance. But it seems like when the shelter team really has time to get fully on board and so they're behind it and they communicate with a lot of confidence, like, no, this is what we do. The public is just like, okay, well, you know best. The public accepts it to the same extent that they accept anything else. And so there's still, you know, always, this is, shelters are always in the crosshairs and there are always a, a small handful of noisy people that feel like they probably know better than what the shelter is doing. And it, and it can be the opposite. You know, one shelter will be getting criticized for doing open adoptions while another shelter is getting criticized for not doing open adoptions. But there's no more squeakiness when we communicate with a lot of confidence. 
I don't know if I want to say that part about the conviction, the, you know, the, the haters on Facebook, like, it's just true though. Like no matter what you do, you're going to get some criticism, but also like what we didn't realize was how much we were setting the tone and the rules of the conversation. And I think really the challenge that we have is to sort of get the new word out. Like you're trying to do on next door that for so long, we have educated the public, like bring the cat in, bring the cat in. That's the right thing to do. Bring the cat in. And now we're trying to tell a different story. Like, no, you don't need to bring the cat in. Schedule an appointment for spay-neuter. Schedule an appointment for spay-neuter. Post the picture of the lost cat on, on Facebook. Find the owner. Foster the kitten. But we have a lot more authority than I think we have believed or that I believed that we had. Kitten season, neonates, our data today, we know more than ever, but ages, particularly when it comes to the youngest cats, we just don't know because they're not reported that way. So these youngest kittens under eight weeks, we know it's a significant issue in tons of communities. How, how are we doing? How are we doing across the country with this? So yeah, we might not have the data, but we know that kittens are still a risk group for those cats that aren't leaving shelters alive right now. And it still goes back to saving what doesn't need to be saved until you saved it. And now it's in trouble. <laughs> so, I mean, you've seen all the education from the wildlife groups saying, don't take that baby bird out of its nest. Leave the baby bunny there. Right? This myth of the orphaned kitten, which is really just people acting on their desire to interfere with something cute and fuzzy. <laughs> Sure, there are kittens that are orphaned and they're in trouble. But if kittens are dry and warm and they have round bellies, so they've been fed, then they are not orphans. And the majority of kittens that come into shelters too young to be adopted were not orphans until somebody stole them <laughs> from their mother, which created a crisis for the kittens and a crisis for the shelter. Now, these unbelievably immunologically vulnerable creatures are in a shelter and it's a, it's an, it becomes an emergency. They have to get to foster care. They have to get fed. They have to be kept warm. They have to be kept toileted. If panleukopenia takes hold, it sweeps through and it keeps shelter staff buried from May to October, sometimes even longer, and unable to sort of think through putting the educational campaigns and having the communication in place that will prevent it for next year, right? It's like every year, a giant crisis just smashes through everything that we do and exhausts us and overwhelms our systems. And I think with, you know, in a way with COVID and with like an increased focus on like, we really, we can't do this, people. We cannot be filling our shelters to the rafters with immunologically vulnerable felines. Like we just can't do it. We can't have sick kittens stacked to the ceiling right now. We cannot become a center point where everybody has to come in and get their foster kittens and go back out with whatever diseases were stirred around in that process. And it's our opportunity to retrain the public. When you find kittens, if they're healthy, mom is probably there. And Kitten Lady in Royal Canaan just had a terrific webinar series on this that I encourage people to listen to. And if mom needs support, support her. You know, provide her with shelter, provide her with food and water from a respectful distance. If she's friendly, yeah, bring her into your garage, you know, help her raise those kittens. And then let the shelter help 
to find homes for the kittens when they are old enough and when the shelter has capacity to do the surgery. So through a managed admission process or let the shelter help foster to home process. If we just like taking the cats out of the adult cats out of the system that already had homes and not putting them in our system and trying to find them new homes. If we took out the kittens that have mothers and didn't bring them into the shelter system until they're old enough and we're ready to spay and neuter them and put them up for adoption, we can handle the ones that really do need help. We can handle the true orphans. We can handle the sick ones. We can handle them better because we would actually have the resources to treat the sick ones. We wouldn't have to be so worried about that sickness spreading to all the 200 healthy ones that are waiting for their foster people to come and get them. So again, it's, it's sort of putting down the excessive burden that we've taken upon ourselves to not just respond to the cats that are in trouble, but to the respond to the cats that are doing okay out there. And instead to support the vast majority of people in the community who really like cats. Like, yeah, there are those people who don't like cats and they will always criticize us and hate on us on Facebook and call a million times. But that is a minority of Americans. You only have to look at like Google cat YouTube video and see the 37.9 million results you get in 0.3 seconds to know like this is a nation of cat lovers truly and taking care of cats and taking care of kittens is something that people want to do and we do have the wherewithal to support them in that you know it definitely this progress at one area that i saw uh during covid one thing that just kind of blows my mind it, the stories of people who had never fostered before and stepped up to foster and i don't mean like oh well, yeah i'll take the perfectly healthy easy puppy uh i'm gonna I'm, i'll take neonates you tell me what that involves and i'm in first time fosters and i just the, the people would take on that challenge it's so mind-blowing to me it's just incredible so what's next for the million cat challenge i would say actually instead of saying what's next for the million cat challenge like what's next what would be my hope for what's next for the five key initiatives of the million cat challenge and what's next for cats and animal shelters um i think COVID has shown us how each of the five key initiatives could both deepen and expand and not apply only to cats, but also apply to dogs and rabbits and the other animals that come into shelters in high enough numbers to need their own plan. So just taking the first of alternatives to intake, just as you said, like COVID has shown us like nothing else, no amount of lecturing or research or reading books could have ever shown us the possibility for community members to step up and be part of the safety net. And so we need to go from like alternatives to intake is a sometimes thing to alternatives to intake or pet safety net programs is the first, second and third choice. And then fourth choice is like, okay, you come into the shelter. Like we're finding alternatives to intake. It's not just for neonatal kittens that maybe somebody could foster or someone's cat is peeing outside the litter box that we can help you solve. But it's for that stray dog that you found. You don't need to bring it in where it's going to be an hour across town in traffic from where it was lost. You can just put it on nextdoor.com and on our Facebook page and on our website right there in the neighborhood where you found it and it'll go back home, right? And capacity for care. Like now we're seeing that, um, you know, shelters, when they dropped to sometimes they were 25% full, 15% full in getting ready for the wave of COVID and the loss of staffing. Well, when they finally got down to where they weren't full and they weren't overburdened with animals, 
What did they do? They didn't sit on their butts watching soap operas. They put their training online, you know, so that their virtual, their training, their foster parents and their volunteers can now take virtual training. You know, they got their staff fear-free certified. They empowered themselves to do a better job. Through portal mania, they've changed their cat housing. So now it's going to have 90% less upper respiratory infection. So we really see the power of operating truly within capacity. And then I think on the sort of removing barrier side also, between COVID and the elevated awareness of racial and social justice and an elevated commitment to really embracing that, like talk about a commitment to removing barriers and opening to every adopter in our community and opening to every person who's lost their pet and having no barriers to return to owner as well. And like radical return to owner programs that get lost animals back home instead of trying to find them new homes. So I think that's the potential that we see. It's even bigger than the Million Cat Challenge because it's not just for cats anymore, but it's an extraordinary opportunity that we have right now to make another fundamental shift. Um, But I still think those five key initiatives hold up really well in terms of framing. What do we do before they come in? How do we decide when they come in? How do we care for them while they're with us? And how do we make sure that they go out the door in the most open and equitable manner that we can possibly arrange? Okay, so people... Uh, people who want to know how they, their organization, shelter can take part, just go to the website. Yep, milliongatchallenge.org. Um, still join, even though we already beat our million and we beat our two million and we beat our two and a half million. Um, still join the Million Cat Challenge. As we were chatting, I just went in and bought 5milliongatchallenge.org. Oh, don't <laughs> underestimate our ambition. You better buy 50 million. Oh, 50 million? <laughs> Nice. Is that a new goal you'd like to announce here on the Best Friends Podcast? No, I mean, we really are. I mean, I'd love to see that number go up, but it is really about nothing less than the right outcome. That's the best way I can phrase it. The right outcome for every cat, every dog, every rabbit that comes to a shelter for an animal that's terminally suffering, then humane euthanasia. That really is. That's the meaning of the term. For an animal that had an owner, the right outcome is for that animal to go back to the owner who loved that animal. You know, the right outcome, even though adoption is better than euthanasia, still not the right outcome. For an animal whose owner can't keep her or him, then the right outcome is adoption. But that is what, it's what animals deserve. And it's also what people who work in shelters deserve, right? They work in shelters because they love animals and they deserve to be able to feel like they are doing right by them. We have come a long way, Kate. It's a testament to everyone doing this work, but especially so um, because of people like you and Julie Levy, others who have led the way on these issues. Dr. Kate Hurley, I think the world of you, you're one of my heroes, and I'm thankful to know you, and I truly appreciate uh, you spending the time talking with me about this. Oh, man, it is really, truly extraordinary. I feel so lucky to have been I mean, I don't feel lucky to be experiencing a COVID pandemic, but to be able to be born in the time where we got to see this trajectory. When I first started working at the Santa Cruz SPCA, we had two shopping carts. And when a litter of puppies came in, we would put half in one shopping cart to adoption and half in one shopping cart to euthanasia. Roly poly puppies. And coming from there... Like I'm old now, but I'm not that old. And like to come from there where like that just seems like such a different world, doesn't it? And like, thank God that that's true, that people working in shelters aren't 
rolling two shopping carts up to the front, or at least I hope not. I hope not that that's not happening. And if they are, call us at millingcatchallenge.org. <laughs> we'll help. We've put up information related to the challenge up on the website. You can learn how you and your organization can get involved. And don't forget, comments. I'd love to hear from you about what you're doing to save the lives of cats where you live. The producers, Tawny Hammond, Amy Charlton, and Mark Peralta. I'm John Dunn, and this is the Best Friends Podcast.